This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Thanks for being here. Before we get into today's program, I just wanted to remind everybody that Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. So go to flux.community for more articles and podcasts about politics, media, religion, and technology. And you can also go to theoryofchange.show to get direct access to the podcast within Flux. And if you like what we're doing, we got paid subscriptions on Substack or Patreon. And so I do appreciate everybody who is subscribing in that way. But you can also do a free subscription as well. And please do share the episodes with your friends and family. Let people know what we're doing here. I really do appreciate that. Thanks very much. Okay, so with that little plug out of the way, let us get into today's program. Sex workers, people who earn living, ah. Sex workers, people who earn a living as escorts or adult entertainers, are some of the most visible people in media nowadays. According to the web traffic stats company SimilarWeb, three of the top 15 websites in the world are pornographic video services. And yet, despite how popular porn has become, a lot of us don't know too much about the people who work in the industry. And, and that's a shame because a lot of them have very interesting stories to tell and are interesting people themselves. And one person who is kind of breaking the mold in that regard is the guest that we're uh, going to be talking with on today's show. Her name is Tasha Rain, and she has just published a new book called From Princess to Porn Star, A Real Life Cinderella Story. So it's great to have you here, Tasha. Welcome to Theory oh, of Hi, thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, so your book has so many different stories here. I have to say you, you've definitely led a very interesting life. Really kind of from the beginning, a lot of people who have some kind of a celebrity background, they're like, yeah, I just had a regular boring childhood. And then somehow I got famous one way or the other. And in your case, you start off the interesting stuff right from the beginning. You were in one of the earliest reality television shows. Let's maybe start there. How about that? Yes, I was. When I was in high school, I was picked to do the Laguna Beach show, season three, the one that nobody watched. <laughs> but it was really inter interesting to be on reality TV in high school. And in the book, I go into the nuances of that, but it was an experience that bonded me with my friends that I still have today, like all the friends that I have today are the friends I had from preschool. It's pretty crazy. And I do think that the show mm -hmm. has something to do with some of those friendships lasting because it was just such a bond that was unique to any other friendship I've had because it's like we're coworkers, but we're also friends. And yeah, it definitely so it's a very opened. Uni unique shared experience too. Like a unique um... shared experience. But when I bring it up, believe it or not, I talk to some of my girlfriends, like, Cammy, who was on the show. And when it gets brought up, she says she doesn't remember. <laughs> what do you mean? It wasn't that, I mean, it was long ago. She's like, I think I have PTSD from the show. I'm like, mm. oh my gosh, maybe. Okay. Because I think that it did not necessarily showcase the best light, especially on the people that were the focus of the show, like the main characters, that's one reason. And another reason is it was a long time ago. And yeah, it, it might have been a little like blurry for some people. I don't know. Anyway, I thought that was mm -hmm. funny that she, that she doesn't remember it. Well, so for people who never saw it, that show at all or never heard of it. Oh, like, everyone what? saw Laguna Beach. Uh, if you're yeah, not okay, an elderly so. millennial, yeah. then Laguna Beach, the real OC, was a reality-based slash scripted, the first of its kind, a reality-scripted reality drama show and it was a show that followed high schoolers around as creepy as that sounds when i say it like 16 17 year old girls and boys and they would follow us in our social world on film at parties at restaurants and it was partially curated to a degree. So they would say something like, what are you up to this weekend? And you'd be like, oh, I'm going to Charlie's party. And they'd be like, okay, we'll show up at 6 p.m. Can I have Charlie's contact info to get permission to shoot? 
So these parents would give these camera operators, directors, producers from MTV, the permission to shoot in their home while we got wasted. And you can see us getting drunk with like a red cup in hand, red solo cup, which is fucking wild. And so they would shoot us at parties or they'd be like, oh, can you guys like do something this weekend? And we'd be like, okay, we're going to go to this restaurant. And they'd be like, okay. And they would like pull the permits for the restaurant, get there, and they would shoot us eating. And then they would sit there and be like, oh, okay, talk amongst yourselves. And then they would inter interject and be like, oh, can you talk about Kellen? Oh, can you talk about the drama with Derek? And you'd be like, oh, okay. And then you would, you would improv it. But it was real, but also improv and kind of manipulated at the same time. It was a strange, strange scenario to be in as somebody that's never acted before. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was fun. And I definitely want to leave the experience like on a good note although i did i talk about how now i don't find this to be a very like ethical thing that they were doing i don't have like some horrible traumatizing memory from it i just kind of feel like gosh i wouldn't let my own child do that yeah well and and you now that I'm a mom. <laughs> yeah well yeah and you noted that they seem to want to show people more when they engaged in kind of catty behavior oh. or well, the whole show um, is the whole show is based on drama so that is what fuels the show the show is based on things that are sensationalized things that are extreme bad entertaining and so as a cast member when you're like 16 years old you're encouraged without them saying it to behave in behavior that you think the viewer might want to watch most. And based on the first and the second season, we're motivated and kind of like driven by that behavior, which was bad and inappropriate. So mm -hmm. it's just, it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a strange concept. Yeah. Oh, and they also didn't really pay people very well as, as I We were not either. paid very well at all. Like, I don't know what other seasons were paid, I would assume it had the same like lining as the third season, but for the, the same rates. But honestly, I don't, I'm not sure. I just know my own season and my own rate and my coworkers rates. And we were just paid almost nothing. It was like a few thousand bucks for the whole season and no residuals. But honestly, the, the income part is really like that actually is triggering because they should have paid more to us. And at least I wasn't a main character because the main characters were were paid, to my knowledge, the same amount because we signed those contracts before and we didn't find out who the main character was till the very end. Yeah. Although, to be I honest, everybody like, got the same. Yeah. Although, like that part, I actually kind of liked that when you mentioned they did that, that Why? people didn't know if they were the main character. No, not, not with the money. Why? I'm saying, Why do you like that? Because it made it so that nobody knew if you were the main character or not. And so it basically, I, I don't know, I gave it a little bit more authenticity in terms of your the cast member relationships with each other. Oh, so, well, so, no. I think people caught on because you would have more filming engagements and more like days the main to shoot. Yeah, of course. And on top of that, the narrative during mm -hmm. those filming experiences would be focused upon the main character and their drama. They did confuse us because sometimes they would shoot us in a way where somebody who was not the main character thought they were the main character but i think it's a real mind fuck and honestly <laughs> nobody should be shooting underage it doesn't make any sense well that's yeah i mean that's definitely it's a whole other issue it's crazy crazy yeah yeah okay. well okay so but that all that experience at least gave you some familiarity with the idea of being filmed on camera and and being being in media and and i'm sure like people recognized you after that who didn't know you right so i guess in some way like it did kind of maybe prepare you for the life that you later engaged in to some degree right okay to some degree yeah yeah okay so all right so after that and after high school you have another interesting story in there that your parents didn't tell you that you were 
the child of a sperm donor that your father who had raised you, they didn't even tell you until you were an adult that he was not your father. I cannot believe it. When you say it, I'm like, what? How did that happen? (laughs) Yeah. No, it's, that is, but, and I guess like you were maybe some, one of the earliest ones out there, the test tube babies. Absolutely. Um, I was one of the first batches. It was like the first couple of years it was ever even done. Yeah, which, and I, yeah, but now it's super common now, and... It's super common. But, yeah, hopefully people... And you talk about that in the book, that once you did learn that as an adult, that it was kind of a real weird thing to have to back your way out of and into at the same time, you know. I can only imagine how that must have felt. Um, I mean, I think I'm still... I think I'm still processing it because it's just so incredibly bizarre. It's a, it's a strange, it's strange. And it also comes up in ways that I wouldn't necessarily expect it to, or hadn't went before I knew, like mm-hmm. for instance, I have siblings that are half siblings from my actual father, but they're not the sperm donor siblings. They're actual siblings. I grew up thinking were my blood are not my half siblings. They're they're not because I'm not blood related to my deceased father. And so although we still have our relationships, sometimes I'll find myself thinking like, oh, well maybe we're not very close anymore because we're not really blood related. So it's mm-hmm. just kind of like not ideal. I almost Like, there's no way to hide it. I think initially they never wanted me to find out. But with the DNA testing and Ancestry, DNA.com and all of these websites where you can just go get your DNA tested, you can never keep it a secret. It's out. So Mm -hmm. I think it's about, I guess, talking to your kids. Like, if you engage in that, you need to have a sit down conversation with them and maybe have a therapist involved and really like explain to them what happened and why. And mm-hmm. it just needs to be like done in a loving way, especially now that it's so common. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, at least it didn't affect your childhood. Like you found out about it as an adult. I think that's, well, that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, yeah. Cause like, yeah, it, it might've come between you and your parents when you were younger. I who, know, knows? Or, who knows? Yeah. yeah. Who knows how it did affect my childhood? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, all right. So you, so you, after you went to finished high school in Southern California, Laguna Beach, you mm-hmm. then started thinking about college, and you applied to a few and didn't get into the ones that you wanted. And then, so you, you were, it was Santa Monica Community College, I believe it, you said. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember that. And, and you, at, around that time, I guess that was around when you started getting into escorting. If I, so what made you decide to get into that? Or how'd you well, get Well, so I got into escorting, it was so long ago. I was 19 years old, maybe, and I was actually just looking for a modeling job online on Craigslist, like a weirdo and a Playboy modeling job. That's what I wanted to do. And I saw this ad and the woman looked like a Playboy model. She probably was one. She was really pretty. And it said Playboy modeling gig. I thought it was one and I responded. I then met this lady in Beverly Hills and her white Mercedes Benz. And she was telling me about the job, about meeting a guy, meeting men at this beautiful house in Beverly Hills. And I was like, oh, so like, do I have to have sex with these people? And she's like, no, not always or not really. And she said something that evaded the question where in the book I'm like, was it like because she was trying to trick me or like she thought I was a cop? I don't know. But anyway... I remember my first booking and it was with a man in like Marina Del Rey. And it was a weird experience because he, well, I had braces. So I just like looked so young and he was just honestly, like I was not interested at all. And I was just there for the job. And it was honestly, it was a scary experience because it's like stranger danger or something I had not engaged in. Maybe like a little bit of thrilling though too. 
And afterwards I was like, well, that was easy, even though it honestly wasn't easy. But I think in my mind, I was like, well, it's like a lot of money and I'm, I have sex anyway, casually. So why not? And yeah, it gave me a sense of independence for sure. But I did not like it. And so I stopped doing it. I was just like, this is not something I'm enjoying. So stopped doing that. And then I actually was taking like strip aerobics classes and started dancing at a club called Silver Rain in Los Angeles. And up until recently, unless I'm missing the billboard, they had like this huge billboard of my photo that I had gave them if they put my website at the bottom of it. And it was advertising their club Silver Rain. And I would get texts like every week, do you own Silver Rain? I don't <laughs> own Silver Rain. I don't even dance there. But um, that was where you got your, decided to take your porn That name. is where I took my porn name from because I thought it was a cool name. So, but yeah, so I, I got into the adult business kind of through an interesting path. And then I met somebody at a gentleman's club for play in West Hollywood who took me up to the Playboy Mansion and that just kind of uh, turned into my adult career. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I guess, yeah, the, you do talk about that whole Playboy experience quite a, a bit. I and, know, quite a bit. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to, to think about, but I guess in the context this is a theme throughout the book is that this whole Madonna whore distinction. Tell us, for people who haven't heard that term, what does that mean? It's something that is not just involved with sex work, but also just women in general. Women in, in general. Yes. Yeah. I feel like there is, I mean, there is a stigma with women where the patriarchy will often paint them in a light that is either a like Madonna or a whore or a good girl or a bad girl or a virgin or a whore or just one or the other. Like you cannot coexist. You cannot be, be a sex there. worker. Yeah. And just be a human, just be a, a, a complex woman. And I actually genuine, and I, I touched, I talked about it in the book. I think that is, beginning to change so i don't like feel like it focused on how that is today and all be all i think i spoke a lot about how stereotypes and stigmas have started to lift due to only fans and normalization of sex work which i think is like really on the rise to a point where i'm constantly surprised i have conversations with friends that are not an adult and they say things where I'm like, what did you just say? Like, I was at a mom's group hangout drink thing the other night in a neighborhood near where I live with a bunch of, like, 50-year-old women. Like, 30, 50-year-old women. And they all have kids, and they're all moms. And they were, like, using the word Pornhub as, like, kind of like a noun or an adjective. Like, oh, that's, like, I should put this on Pornhub and make some money off of it. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, saying stuff like that. Or like, I'll have a girlfriend. I was at a mommy, another mommy and me class. And she was like, how much are you making on OnlyFans? And I was like, why are you, why are you asking? So there's just, a, I feel like there's just a lot of conversation that's being had that's positive and just different than it was when I got into adult, which was like over a decade ago where things were different. And I definitely felt like this pressure of, if I do, if I do porn, then I, I will always be just seen as this porn star. And I don't feel like that anymore. And I think it's really important takeaway. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and we'll get into that uh, a little bit more later in the interview. But I, you know, in, in terms of, I mean, even the Madonna whore uh, discrimination existed in that in that Playboy, in the Playboy mansion and in the world yeah. of Hugh Hefner. And you talk about that, like that for him, he didn't want women to be involved in his social circle or in his media content if they if he knew that they were stripping or that they were escorting that's true yeah you, you shooting you can't be a playmate. Sex, that's true hardcore porn um yeah and like it's i mean 
It's it, so long I mean, ago, it, but that is true. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's such a weird thing to think about in retrospect that here's a it's guy. It's not though. Well, tell it's me, yeah, tell weird. me, yeah. No, I mean, I, it's it's inconsistent, but you can see where he, his logic in his own brain, I how can, it works yeah. for him. I can, but tell us, yeah, tell me, works. in what way do you think it worked for him though? In the same way that everybody's own logic works, it's like they view certain things in a certain way. And then anything outside of their viewpoint to them is not appropriate or not in line. It's not just some, to, maybe to somebody that's not in sex work or not in the Playboy world, it's easy to paint like a broad brush and be like, oh, sex work is sex work. But I think a lot of people have certain feelings that they have about the aesthetic of what they're viewing and how that is very different than hardcore pornography. Somebody might see a soft picture of a nude woman as art and then one where she's not looking as soft and that is different. It's it's art is subjective. So I can mm. totally understand it. I don't like not get it. I get it. Yeah. But I do, well, I, I, you know, I, yeah. Well, there's and there's a phrase for people who study sex work as an academic discipline that it's kind of a it's kind of a joking but not quite a joke phrase they call it the the horrorarchy that of of, of people funny. who funny i've never who do heard that yeah in the sense that like people who don't like people who are at the very totally. bottom tend to be totally. people who are who are escorts and transgender and are looked down on and not seen as worthy of protection and Oh, that is true. I mean, when I took my hierarchy of sex work class, they the teacher said that if you're a waitress, then you're a sex worker. If you're a bartender, then you're a sex worker. So I feel like people have like just different ideas of the totem pole of sex work or like what actually constitutes sex work. Mm, yeah. Well, talk about that a little bit more if you if you could. Well, I think that, oh, it's, it's so complicated or it's, so, it's kind of such a, so many layers to it. But I mean, any job where you're using like your sexuality in some capacity could be considered sex work. So like, I always think mm -hmm. of a bartender as a sex worker, but I don't think people outside of sex work might think that. They know. can't perceive it as such. They don't perceive it as that. But I, yeah. I would never, if somebody's like, I'm a bartender, I'm like, oh, you're a sex worker. Yeah. Yeah. Because well, uh, yeah. you're literally it, it, like, what can I get you? Well, and it's, yeah, it's an interesting observation because like, if you look at it sometime, some of the reporting that I've done over the years involves looking at incel men who are just, you know, Kill them all. <laughs> horrible people but they like for them they also see service work like barista as or bartender work? as sex work and well, but they I don't do. and I'm because not like an yeah <laughs> but no like for them like but they don't understand it as that that this is a business transaction that the woman's engaged right. with well like, no i think in other words do understand they can they see it slowly well, 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 yeah, but it's but it's also that like they think some of them think that this woman at the bar smiled at me and she looked me in the eye. And so therefore she likes Yeah, me. they don't they uh. don't. Uh, <laughs> they're not necessarily thinking if they think do they think it's work then? No, they see the output. Or? In other words, they they can see the output, like the sexuality in the output a little they bit. They see the whore. They don't necessarily see. They that don't see the work, though. Or they see that uh -huh. it's a sexy woman that to mm -hmm. them is actually exuding likability towards them, but they don't see that it's a, a craft and a work, a job with respect. Yeah, they don't see they that. Don't I, don't see think that. They, I don't think it's sex work that they see. I think they see that the woman is sexual. Sexualized. They see the output of it, but they don't yeah. see why it's happening is what For I'm money. saying. For money. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so that's a scary parallel that we, <laughs> that Intel <laughs> and I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, but that, that is one of the reasons that I was interested in talking to you because like your book does like it, it's, I mean, I don't know how, I don't think I've ever read any of these memoirs of a porn star before, but like <laughs> I, I have, when I was like, when, when, when our, when our, one of our mutual friends introduced us, I was like, oh, she's got a master's degree in journalism. 
I bet this book's actually going to be interesting. And it was. It was interesting. Oh, good. I'm so happy you enjoyed it. I really wanted it to be entertaining. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, okay. So you, yeah, you got into to doing adult films after being in the Playboy orbit for a while. And, and I guess he, Hefner, you write about how he, once he found out what you were doing, he expelled you from the mansion. Talk, talk about that experience a little bit, if you could, please. So I had asked Hef to become a playmate after being a Playboy model. And he tested me, which is the criteria before becoming a playmate down at Playboy Studios. And I did not pass the test. I was not given the title of playmate. I was just asked to be like a Playboy cyber girl online. And I was devastated, like brokenheartedly devastated, floridedly sad, angry, upset, life over. And so I was like, well, what's next? I am just going to go sign a contract and become a porn star. That is what I'm going to do. Because I felt like after reading Jenna Jameson's book, How to Make Love Like a Porn Star, like I needed control. And she seemed to have a lot of control over her career. And so I figured out a way to get into adult, hardcore adult entertainment and the women up at the mansion knew that I was doing porn probably because I told them they were my friends and it got back to Hugh Hefner's wife at the time who's now a widow to him, Crystal Hefner. And she told him to write me letters to dismiss me from being a weekend girl on Friday, Saturday, Sundays, and to blacklist me and to tell me that I wasn't allowed to do porn if I was going to even be a Playboy model. And it was devastating. It was like a heartbreaking thing for me because I loved Playboy so much. And I understood, like, in retrospect, it's not that I don't understand why he did that. It was just, for me, a horrible horrible experience because that was like my whole world up at the playboy mansion so yeah mm-hmm. yeah well and i guess since the that happened that that experience you kind of have kind of rethought the experience somewhat and realized that while it was both an opportunity for you it was also not quite that as well that there were some more unsavory aspects of that experience lots right? of unsavory aspects of the, mm-hmm. whole, the whole book, a lot of unsavory things. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I think one of the things that's important for you in telling your story is that I think a lot of people, because they don't know people in the adult entertainment industry, or at least not that they know of, right? <laughs> that they think that, that especially women who get into stripping or escorting or porn, that they that you don't choose it. You do it because there is something wrong with you. And it's just not true for a lot of people who get into adult film, that it's something that they're interested in. And you talk about that in the book, that it was something that you were like, no, this is something I want to do. And this is something that I'm passionate about. And I think that that's, it's, it's helpful in getting people to understand that there's nothing wrong with somebody choosing to do that if that's what they want to do. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're, you, you have any more response than that? Or, or did I say it perfectly? <laughs> you are perfectly eloquent. Oh, okay. All right. Well, so, okay. So then, so after you started doing, or early on in your career, so you started it when you were 21 and you were going to college at the same time. And I guess early on in your career, you, you became a political figure for 15 minutes which is a story that people might remember. There was a famous photo of you, and and we'll have it on the screen for people who are watching on video, um, of you at an event with with then-President Bill Clinton. Um, That's a, it's a hilarious story, but you got to tell us. Yeah, tell tell us that story here for people who, who, because I'm sure a lot of people saw that picture. And they don't know yeah. the story of what the happened context. behind it. Yeah. Give, give it mean, to us, please. 
I was on a trip with the owner of Penthouse Magazine at the time. And I was with my girlfriend and his girlfriend. And we were in Monaco, the south of France, for a fundraiser. And there was a bunch of celebrities there, but Bill Clinton was there. And I was like so excited and enamored by him. Even if it was for one second, I was like, I got to get a photo. My mom would love that. She's a, she was a big Democrat. So I've just got to take a picture. <laughs> so we asked him and his bodyguards were like, sure, come on over. So we just took a picture. And then like, I mean, I don't know how many drinks I had. I mean, because the pose that I was doing was not appropriate. But it wasn't, it wasn't anything too crazy either. And so my girlfriend, honestly, I think she sent it to her boyfriend who was in PR and it went viral. And yeah, it was just like the talk of Monaco the entire time we were there. There was like so much press around it. So many people reached out to do interviews. But then I was so upset because although it got a lot of attention and I was doing something that was so fun partying in the South of France. I just felt like, Oh my gosh, people think that because I'm here taking a photo with him, that somehow that there's like something sexual happening because I do adult. And it just really made me enraged and so angry. Uh, so I just talked about that, but then from years to come, fans would bring that photo to get signed at uh, <laughs> conventions mm-hmm. when I used to uh, tour to do conventions. Yeah, and like, y- he had no idea who you were. Didn't talk to you after that was over. No! Like, it no, was literally just, just party five and I minutes. I just wanted a photo. He was the president of the United States of America who wouldn't want a photo with him. Yeah, yeah. I guess there's a few people that wouldn't want a photo with him. Well, if they were a Republican, they wouldn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so no, it was, it's just a, a, a funny little kind of Forrest Gump moment, even though people were not very nice about it. Uh, but it's funnier now in retrospect, right? It's Joshua? so funny. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so okay. So you and you know what? Uh, just can I just say something that Monica Lewinsky has really made a comeback. And she's the best thing that could have come out of what I think was like 2020, where she like, everybody started following her on Twitter and she was just so demonized in my youth. And then now she's just like this TED speaker and people are like, yes, queen, you were the victim. And I just love Monica Lewinsky because of that. Yeah. When it was, and I just yeah. saw her yesterday, like on, in it, some article about... Mm-hmm. Her, I think it was her birthday yesterday, and I was like, "Yes, she's out of the shadows." Thank goodness. See, that's the times that we're living in. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point, and yeah, and like people saw what why she was able to be an intern in that in that for that nowadays they can actually see what qualified her to to get to that point oh my gosh Um, yeah and it's like her whole narrative is is completely different thank goodness to social media mm -hmm. yeah she actually gets to tell her side of the story and everybody's on her side yeah amazing yeah yeah all right so one of the things that the clinton experience did you, you you have a quote from a, a writer named Lisa Wade about that experience because you felt like you wrote that it kind of made you they were that the media reporting about you and the what you who you were just really was so derogatory that at I mean, this time uh, yeah at that time yeah and so yeah. one of the things that you put in there was this quote from Lisa Wade that and I'll have it on the screen that says a patriarchal bargain is a decision to accept gender wow. rules that disadvantage women in exchange for whatever power one can wrest from the system. It is an individual strategy designed to manipulate the system to one's best advantage, but one that leaves the system itself intact. Um, so what what was your I feel like including I that in the pers- book? I personally feel like I don't think women should be shamed for making the patriarchal bargain. I think that that's just part of capitalism and patriarchy. And so I see myself as 
a feminist, but I think a lot of feminists would say that it is not feminist to make the patriarchal bargain. But I would just, I would have to disagree because that's the system that we were born into. And I think taking advantage of what you can as a woman in this world should not be something that is shamed or looked down upon. That's like you're, you're in this kind of trapped situation. And I mean, I can't remember exactly which chapter that correlated with, but I'm sure the content had something to do with whatever patriarchal bargain I had made. And um, my girlfriend brought it up, who's an escort, the other day. And she was talking about that. And she was saying that she's well aware that that is something that she engages in and that she's just fine with that, that she still, she still feels like what she does is liberating at least for her, and that she gets a lot of flack from a lot of people about it just because she's not fighting for other people or not doing, not dismantling the system by not engaging in it whatsoever. And it's just like, that's not, that's not fair to do either. So yeah, I guess just admitting that I might not i might have many things to say about the patriarchy but i at the end of the day engage in it in order to benefit my life yeah Mm. yeah well and i guess maybe the distinction and you tell me if this is part of your mental calculus is that you're you're you make no judgment for people women who do that is maybe as long as they also make no judgment against others for doing that as well. Because like, I think that's where the yeah. the Madonna whore thing is important because I think that maybe they, it seems like that, yes. I mean, you look at some feminist writing, I mean, there's a divide between sex positive and, and sort of, I don't know, people who yeah. want to focus on women as being only the victims of the system um, right. It's like they're and, basically doing the same thing that they are so against men doing, which is sexualizing women and saying that that's all that, you know, they are kind of worth. No, like, no, they're condemning women's choices at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, that, and that's why I think a, a lot of younger women who have come along and think about these same topics that mm. they are more positive about sex work and they are and, and they're, they're really yeah defend and stand and also include and trans women as well yeah well yeah but i i often feel like hmm, i guess it's just la is so progressive and sometimes i feel like it just depends on who you're talking to honestly politics are so complicated but I do find that there are plenty of liberal, progressive women or people that did identify as that who shame sex workers. And you're like, what? For making the patriarchal bargain. It's a, we- it's a weird topic because- Well, I, it's I people think- living the way that they can, like in a way that's comfortable for them. And why would you condemn that? But people do, you're right about that, they do. Um, yeah, on both sides of politics, it is n- mm-hmm. not one or the other. I would say both both sides. But I I play tennis, and so I'm surrounded by very conservative women at my country club. Every I, I feel I know not everybody is, but like a lot of them are. I would maybe even it's just fifty fifty, but I just feel like a lot of them are, and I'm surprised by how very supportive they are. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's really opened my eyes this year to like, I guess I just, I never really talked about my career at tennis. <laughs> I know this is so, we have got off topic, but I've never talked talked about it at tennis. And then my book came out and everybody at my country club bought my book, all the 70 year old women that I played tennis with. And they all read the book. And they're all into it. And they're like coming to the signings and talking about the book 24-7 on the courts. And it's just interesting because these Mm -hmm. are people that I judged before as people I was like, oh, they, I I don't want to get into the nuances of my job with them. Turns out they're my biggest fans. Mm. 
Yeah, well, and maybe that's because they knew you as a person first, and oh, that could be what it was. Because, because like, totally. yeah, because like, I mean, in my own experience, when when I was and, and and we had discussed this offline before, but like, when I was born and raised as a as a fundamentalist Mormon, I had had this very, you know, extreme view that yeah like that women who engaged in sex work were horrible satanic temptresses and then when i was (laughs) and then when i was in college i I got to know somebody who was a stripper and and she was just a normal person and she was smart and nice in fact like actually so one of the smartest women that i had known at that school and it it didn't make me like that experience didn't make me completely rethink everything, but it was one of those things that kind of just stuck in the back of my mind yeah. that because it was like, oh, well, my church was wrong about women like her. And, Fundamentalist you know, and, anything. It's not great. Yeah. Yeah. So but I, that I'm guessing maybe that was the experience, perhaps for I mean, some of those women for you. Who maybe, knows? but I honestly don't know. And I don't really whatever it is. I'm not going to ask you appreciate about it. I appreciate <laughs> them. They're my biggest supporters and they're all so sweet and so nice. And they're coming to my book signing next month. And they're just like all about it. It's wild to me. <laughs> it is wild. <laughs> Mostly is, yeah. because of their age too. They're all like in their seventies. I'm like, what? Yeah, that is funny. It's funny. It's, it's fun though. Yeah. Well, okay. So as you, you write that you're, and then I guess you, you started doing, when you went back to doing some stripping now and again, once you got into porn as a feature performer. I mean, not and, now and again. It was every weekend consistently. Oh, okay. Well, yes. Appreciate that correction. No, no, it's okay. Yeah. It was just such a big part of my life. Like, I can't, I don't, I hope that I didn't make it sound like it was casual. It was like every single weekend for what felt like almost a decade of my life. Now, did that time. did that get exhausting after a while did you get tired of it saying it oh my god when i think of the airport now i'm like it has to be a private jet there is no way i'm going to lax i'm going to lax in october (laughs) to go to canada to be on like some show for a website called many vids and i'm literally in my mind like oh my gosh how am i gonna get on an airplane because that is how i feel about the airport it's just lax is a terrible airport let's be honest thank you let's be honest (laughs) yeah well all right so and and there's and you and you did talk about a lot of the the work that goes into being able to do this kind of performance on the regular whether it's sex or stripping or whatever that that people may not always understand how much go how much exercise and dieting and makeup and clothing it gets it does it it got expensive i guess right it's so expensive to be a sex worker it really is you spend you could write off everything you spend so much money on on looks and upkeep and i'm sure there's a way to do that on a budget but living in la everything is so expensive and you know you get booked more if you look a certain way part of the bargain so Mm -hmm. it's just very expensive yeah um but there were some there's definitely some as we kind of briefly touched on a second ago some unsavory aspects of the adult industry and there's a passage in here that i'm going to read that i thought was well written about that you say that When you're a female performer in adult film, you are constantly attacked and put down by news outlets and society. In order to cope with this immense judgment, you become defensive, so defensive that you overlook issues that are happening to you for fear of perpetuating unfair stigmas and stereotypes. If there was more room for nuance and less judgment, the pressure to maintain that facade wouldn't be so overwhelming. That is so eloquent. Oh, my God. Amazing. <laughs> so you do talk in the book about some of the more unsavory things that do happen in the industry and how you had spoken out against them, like sexual harassment and other even worse things that you had become aware of. Uh, and people can read more of those details because, I mean, in your own experience, it's it's traumatizing and you don't have to re-traumatize yourself. So, But Thank the you thing so you... Yeah, the thing you took away from it, though, was the importance of consent 
and getting people to understand that better as it applies to them individually. And that was how you became more of a public advocate for that. And tell us maybe about what, how, how you begin doing that and what, what you're doing with that now. Sure. So I have been lucky enough to be a speaker at a bunch of different institutions from Chapman University to UCLA and I met a fraternity brother while I was speaking at one of my UCLA engagements who invited me to his fraternity house so that I could talk to the new pledges about sex and about consent, some of the topics I was talking about in the class at UCLA about. And so he basically recruited me and I voluntarily came over to the house and we did like a seminar session with all of the pledges about how to negotiate boundaries and sex and how to ask for permission from the women that they would be engaging with at these fraternity parties that are oftentimes full of alcohol and drugs and all sorts of um, kind of just illegal and chaotic things. And so I went and we had a conversation and it was eye-opening. It was like, oh my gosh, all these people, these men want to know about consent and it matters to them. And so I was able to go to fraternities from UC Santa Barbara to UC Davis and Riverside and all over the place to speak on behalf of advocating for consent and for asking permission when you engage in sex. And I think it was really empowering and important. And it was it was awesome. It was like an incredible few years of my life. Like I loved doing it. And then it kind of took off and I had a friend, Michael Ellsberg, who is a writer and he's just an amazing guy and he cares a lot about consent as well. And so he wanted to team up and to go talk nationally about consent to fraternity brothers. It was just such a kind of a great Thing that I was doing and he wanted to be part of it and when it got down to the nitty-gritty of it all and organizing those talks he wanted to charge for his services also have me profit in some way for my time because I shouldn't just be doing volunteer work up and down I was going to say the coast but no up, I was already doing volunteer work up and down the coast I didn't want to continue to do that across the country. It was taking up all my time. And the Interfraternity Council did not approve of the budget. They were like, you've been doing this for free. Why are we going to pay you now? Which taught me a lesson in economics. You have to charge from the beginning. And also, when I started to get a lot of press around it, like a full interview on CNN, the Interfraternity Council was also triggered because they were like, we don't want to be associated with a porn star. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I make you look great. So we put an end to that. And it was kind of devastating because I continued to get text messages from fraternity presidents. I wouldn't even say what colleges, but they would be like, will you come? Will you come talk to the pledges? And I'm like, nope, can't do it anymore. So I stopped doing that. But consent has a special place in my heart and it is to me the foundation the most fundamental part about sex and saying that is, almost feels silly because it's like of course it is like why would it not be but i just feel like it's not talked about it is not talked about enough it's not mm. yeah. so it's lovely to be able to talk about the things i've gone through in the adult industry and to make some sort of a change. And in the book, I mentioned how, at least I think I mentioned how I went back to set years later after I experienced unsavory things in the business. And there was like all this consent paperwork and the conversation was really thorough. And it was like a completely different world I walked into. I was like, what? Oh my gosh, it made a difference. And obviously I can't take credit for everything, all the change, all the good changes in the business i am just one of the many many voices but who did what was, speak out yeah yeah it was so lovely to see that change and 
to feel but you did like, ha- kind wow, of help get it started. I think don't sell yourself short. I'm not selling way. myself short. I just <laughs> want everybody to know that I realize many women speaking up made mm-hmm. a difference. Yeah. Well, all right. And then I guess the other thing that's kind of reconfiguring porn now, and you mentioned it at the front of this conversation is OnlyFans. And it has really been kind of a liberating thing for a lot of people. And whether that's women who might not have wanted to have to go and move out to Southern California to do porn or for whatever so reason. expensive to live here. <laughs> yeah. Or like people who wanted to do trans modeling, and but they couldn't find anyone who would pay for them in the industry. But now mm-hmm. they actually have people who, who wanted to see their things. but And now they can have a lifestyle off of it and not have to be living in more risky situations for themselves. So it's been beneficial. And it's also, I think, and maybe we can talk about it, like for your, you and your fans, like, has it helped them have a better uh, relationship with you? I mean, you've had fans for a number of years, you call them reindeers, that's what they call themselves, right? Has the relationship between you and your fans changed as well? Like, maybe let's talk about that. Sure, yeah. Only OnlyFans changed the landscape of adult entertainment and I think entertainment in general when it came out. And especially, and I just like to focus on this because I don't hear other people talking about it, but COVID. COVID mixed with OnlyFans created the normalization of sex work. It really did. Like I was waiting for the moment my whole life. And then in 2020, it just seemed like creators from all walks of life, all different types of backgrounds were creating content and putting it on OnlyFans. And by using their mainstream brands, they kind of made it so that adult was just another form of entertainment. And then OnlyFans Mm -hmm. took off in a way where not only was everybody using it, but so many people were creating on there. And so it just like kind of all got mashed together and now people talk about OnlyFans like it's an accounting job like it's just everybody's on OnlyFans and mm-hmm. I know I'm, I'm speaking in a dramatic manner because I'm sure not everybody would agree with me but I feel like from coming from 2010 to present day it really is like a day and night transformation like sex work mm-hmm. and porn I'll just say, I'll use the word porn. Porn was something that was kind of hidden and taboo and still Mm -hmm. is. But then OnlyFans came along and just kind of made it really, really common. Like it's just, Mm -hmm. I feel, at least living in LA especially, you Mm -hmm. just feel it in a way that I don't know if Mm -hmm. other states can appreciate. And it's amazing for me. I feel like I can just be more authentic and that other people that like want to be on OnlyFans can also be authentic and be themselves and not Mm -hmm. as judged. And so I love it. And I think it's a lot, I know it's a lot safer because you can create and make money from home and you never have to go to some set where you don't know people, but you could still do that if you want. You just don't have to, mm-hmm. to make money off of film yeah. on, you know, with your body. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's not even only about sex either. Like, that's the other thing is that a lot of people yeah. who are on OnlyFans, like, they just, just want to chat. They just talk to their, their yes, subscribers. The, yeah. And, my fans are like my friends on OnlyFans. And I like talk to them. We have conversations all the time. I know them by name. Mm-hmm. I'm able to invite them out to events. Like it just creates mm-hmm. this intimacy that well, we never had before. Yeah, and like I think that that's part of what the mainstreaming aspect is, though. That because like a lot of people who were performing in other areas of entertainment, so like comedy or acting or whatever, like all those things were shut down during the pandemic, and so people were coming in and and doing some porn and and whatnot. But the other thing is that the people who were doing porn, your fans got to see you as a person more than Mm. just as somebody who they watch for like six or seven minutes. (laughs) I think that that's definitely true. But I think Mm -hmm. that men love amateur content because they think or feel like 
you're their girlfriend or their wife or their significant other or oh, whatever that they, you're, that you're reminding them of the person they know a lot of people i think don't have a partner and mm-hmm. so they're on there i'm not saying exclusively of course if people have a partner and they're using only fans mm-hmm. but there's people a lot of people that their only intimacy comes from adult performers and so mm-hmm. it's like you're on there and you're taking these candid shots of you in your bathroom mirror and it's like who does that except for a girlfriend? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and what, like it's maybe to some degree helping them get, if they had never had any type of relationship, Definitely at least have some them. modeling for this is how you need to treat somebody with respect. If you want to be with them. Well, um, I was going to say that. And the, I, the whole I, thing I is even, consent based. Like the whole model yeah, is consent based. Sure. Like I they mean, can't order yeah. you to do things that you don't want to do. Um, I mean, sure, but I wouldn't. I mean, they say things all the time that I'm only tolerate because I'm being paid. But mm. for me, I just deeply feel like sex work is such a form of, in a way, like I can't think of another word. Charity isn't going to make sense because we're paid, but it is a very similar effect to charity work because people reap benefits that go so far beyond just like oh this person was paid to make them feel good like we as performers meet fans that are like this is it for them this is this is the relationship that they have with women and i mean whether that's good or bad people can discuss that but i think it's amazing because Mm. otherwise what would they do they would have nobody it's lonely life can be lonely yeah, and it's better to have somebody than yeah. than nobody. Is that that's what you're saying? I think yeah. so. I think it's a human need to have sex to get yeah. off and to feel like you have a companion. And even if you're paying for that service, you're still reaping some sort of benefit. And it is not yeah. the same as having somebody in real life. But mm-hmm. you are still getting some form of intimacy and happiness and joy and love and interaction. And I think it's so deeply important. It really is. I can't remember what article this was, but it was like this whole deep dive into the personality traits of a sex worker and how usually a sex worker would be somebody that's normally like a nurse. Like if they weren't a sex worker, they would be a nurse or a babysitter because we're like literally doing those things. We're just helping people. Hmm. All right. Well, and I think that that makes sense. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And it's something that for people who go off and say horrible things about sex workers like Jordan Peterson or whatever, they're harming their own people who like them when they say things like that. I, would I mean, it's just not coming from a kind place. And for that, they should be ashamed of themselves. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, it's been a good conversation. Tasha. Oh my gosh. So fun put the book up on the screen here so it's uh from princess to porn star a real life cinderella story and you are also on instagram at tasha rains life so it's been great having you here i had so much fun talking to you matt all right so that is the program for today i appreciate everybody for joining me and if you want to get more episodes just go to theoryofchange.show where you can get video audio and transcripts of every episode Thanks very much for those who are paid subscribers. You get complete access to everything. So I encourage everybody to do that. And if you are able to share the program or a particular episode that you liked with your friends or family or on social media, I definitely appreciate that as well. And anybody that's leaving nice written reviews on iTunes, that is very much appreciated as well. The written reviews, even more than the stars, are influential as I understand it. So I do appreciate everybody for filling those out. Thank you very much, and I'll see you next time.